Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. You can have a seat if there. I heard the children heading out. If there are any other children in here, three to ten, or basically potty trained, um, they can head up to the, the class um, for them. And as they're also heading up there, um, I want to dive in just to another prayer real quick um, before we jump into this. Father, as our kids are going upstairs right now um, to open up your word and to learn from you, Father, I pray that you would fill their minds with your knowledge, um, fill their minds with the grace um, that you have for them this morning, um, that they would continue to grow in understanding who you are and what you have accomplished for them, so that one day they will come to know you through faith as their greatest treasure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning, church. Um, my name is Dwayne. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, um, I also don't know why, but every time I, I come up here, the first thing I think of is, I think of Steve Harvey when he says, like, hey, my name's Steve Harvey. I'm your host here. We've got a good one for you today. Like, that's always fighting in my mind when I come up here, and it won today. Um, but anyways, not that I, like, view this as, like, a family feud kind of thing, but that's just always my mind when I introduce myself. Um, but anyways... You're welcome. We've landed the plane on the Book of Acts series that we've been walking through for the last 18 months. And so really what I want to do today um, is, is kind of look at all of it, um, the 18 months, the Book of Acts, and kind of see what is our part. What is the role that we play when it comes to this book? Um, because again, we've looked at 18 months, uh, which is really the first 30 years of Christianity, the first 30 years of the church era, beginning as a lot of theologians kind of break it down that way. And so for us, we really want to ask this question, okay, what does this look like for you and me on a day-in, day-out basis to live out the implications of what we've now learned throughout the book of Acts, how God's working, how he's moving, how he's orchestrating the church to, to be and function, what does it look like to enter into a new society or a new culture or a new city and impact the gospel there? Like, What does it look like to do these things on a day-in and day-out basis? Um, and really, this is kind of why you have different networks. I'm thinking of a specific church planting network that calls themselves Acts 29. The reason why they call them Acts 29, it's not because there's 29 chapters in Acts. There's 28, if you were following along with us. But they're calling it Acts 29 because they're the next chapter. Like, we are the next chapter. We're continuing to write out, literally, the Acts of the Apostles when it comes to the movement and spread of the gospel from a historical perspective. And so there's parts that we play in this. And I want to make sure that we understand our part so that we're in the game and not on the sidelines. And I know I might use some like sports metaphors throughout this, but I want to make sure that we're active and not silent or passive or just not doing anything. I want to make sure that we're engaged and not being passive throughout this thing we call Christianity. Um, I want to make sure that we understand that as we're moving forward so that we are fulfilling what God has commanded us to do and to be. 
And so Acts 1.8, which has kind of been the thesis for the entire 18 months that we looked at, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here we have essentially the mission statement of the church. What is the mission? Go and be witnesses. Go and be witnesses. You've seen me. You know who I am. You've witnessed my life, death, and resurrection. Go be witnesses. Literally like witnesses in court who saw something and now they're giving their testimony in court in order to what they saw, what they experienced, in order to provide truth to a story that is being told. And so this is what we are literally called to do. And for us, we are faith witnesses. It's a spiritual thing for us, for many Christians for the last 1,900 years. But for these, in the very beginning, these first 120 people who were standing there with Jesus when he's giving this charge to go and be witnesses, they're not faith witnesses, even though they belong to the faith. They're eyewitnesses. They ate with him. They drank with him. They walked around with him. They're poking in his holes in his hands and his feet. Like they were with him as eyewitnesses. So much so that the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 1 through 4 says things like this. That which was from the beginning. So he says from the beginning of time. That which was from the beginning which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. As a witness, Jesus is telling us, Go and tell people what I've done. Go and tell them all that you've seen, all that you heard, all that you touched, all that you've experienced. Go and tell them. And so now you have the Apostle John who's going out and telling people who have not seen Jesus, who have not ate with Jesus, who have not drank with Jesus, who have not done these things with him. But he's telling them, I've witnessed these things. I've experienced these things. I'm telling you my personal story that I want you to be as I am. I want you to be a partaker of this eternal life. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to receive it. I want you to literally treasure the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the greatest thing that you will ever experience. I want you to have that. And the way in which you receive it is by me telling you about it. By me witnessing to you these things that have happened. So not only am I giving you the mission statement, I'm also giving you the power and authority to execute the mission statement. This is what Jesus is saying. Not only am I telling you just to go and be witnesses, but I'm also going to give you the Holy Spirit who's going to empower you to actually execute this mission. Because what? For us, it makes us nervous to tell people about Jesus, right? Go and be witnesses. Go and tell people what Jesus has done for you. What if they get mad at me? What if they get upset? What if they fill in the blank? Well, these are just human fears that we have because of we don't want to be rejected by people. We don't want to upset somebody. We don't want to um, you know, cause them to have a bad day or whatever it looks like. And he's saying, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to embolden you to be able to get over those fears so that you can actually give them something that helps them actually get over their fears and their angst 
and their anxiety and their stress and their shame and their guilt and whatever it is, fill in the blank. He empowers us to go and do this. Now, if you simply tell people the what, like that's what we're doing, that's what we're called to do is be witnesses. If you just tell people the what without the why or the how, then oftentimes it can get a bit confusing. Let's go be witnesses, but how do we do this? And more importantly, why are we doing this? So what I want to answer for us today is providing clarity to the why and the how behind the what. We've just seen over 18 months the what being played out. Them walking into a new area that has not heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ and then them telling them the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Certain people rejecting it, other people accepting it, and then they move on to another city, and they just keep doing it. This is literally why you have church planting networks right now, why you have denominations, why you have churches themselves who have a family of churches. They want to make sure that the gospel message just keeps getting out. What are they doing? They're getting the gospel message out. So it's easy for us to kind of plug and play. Let's just do that. Let's just train people to get it out. But if we don't also talk about the why and the how, then motivations matter. Someone might be doing it out of a motivation that's not accurate. And also the how matters. There's ways in which he's called us to go and be witnesses that he wants us to do in a way that is going to be effective and efficient for the glory of God and for the joy of us. And so there's ways in which we can look at this. And that's really what I want to answer for us is, is three very profound questions for you. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? How do we do it? Very profound, all right? If you are like a note taker, those are going to be the three points for you. If you're a point taker, I know last week us covering eight chapters through a narrative story or history lesson was a nightmare for you. Today's going to be much better for you, okay? Those three points. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? And how do we do it? Now, we've heard this passage taught multiple times, but I want you to go to it. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. This is the parallel passage of this kind of final meeting between Jesus and his disciples where he's giving them the commission. And I know some of you right now, you're thinking this because I was even thinking this as I was preparing this message was, I've heard this passage a hundred times if you have a church background. If you've been a part of the district for three years, we've taught on it at least a dozen times in the last three years. You've heard this. It's very familiar passage. But listen, don't tune me out because you believe you are very familiar with it. If you've ever read a passage or even just a verse one time and thought, I got it. I don't ever need to read that again. Then what you reveal, honestly, how you view the Bible as a whole. It's a meal you can eat one time, but you're good. It's a movie you say is your favorite, but you only watch it once, maybe twice. It's a song you love, but never listen to again. It'd be like kissing your spouse on your wedding day and saying, wow, that was fun. I get it. And then you never do it again. It's foolishness. And so the Bible needs to be approached from this mindset of, even though I might have read this before and I think I have an understanding here, it is always going to be new for us. And the reason why it's always new for us is because there are, there are Bible verses, there are passages, there are chapters, there are books that I have read 10 years ago 
that was in a different life phase, a different chapter of life, a different scenario, a different circumstance, a different situation, fill in the blank. It was different for me. And so that Bible verse, although unchanging, speaks to me contextually in those places. Just like today, the content of this message might affect a different change in you than when you first heard it as a six-year-old or as a 12-year-old. Because your context is different today. Hearing go and make disciples as a seven-year-old means I'm going to walk into my second grade classroom and tell one of my friends about Jesus. Well, today hearing go and make disciples might be I'm going to walk to my neighbor who is Jewish and start sharing the gospel with them. How do I do that? Because sharing the gospel with a Jewish neighbor versus sharing the gospel with a second year old or a seventh grader, seven year old second grader is going to be a little different. So we want to continue to grow in learning in this book that we hold to so dearly, so that when we read the word, we're not just consuming it, but we're savoring it. We're savoring it. We're learning to smell, taste, feel, sound, vision, all of it. So, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Let's read it together. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So number one, first question, what was it? What are we doing? Well, according to Acts 1 and Matthew 28, we are to be witnesses and we are to make disciples. The proverbial question, God, what do you want me to do with my life? How many of you have asked that before? God, what should I do with my life? What do you want me, what's your will for my life? Go and make disciples. Well, I was thinking of being like an engineer. Great. Go and make disciples. I was thinking about being a teacher. Hey, that's awesome. Go and make disciples. I was thinking about being an electrician. Beautiful. Go and make disciples and don't get electrocuted. I was thinking about fill in the blank, whatever it is, cardiologist, stay-at-home parent, a race car driver is what my four-year-old wants to be right now. Like whatever it is, wonderful. Those are beautiful aspirations. Go and make disciples. We tie so much our purpose based on our vocation that helps steward and cultivate society where we then actually leave out the ultimate purpose of why we exist. All those things are wonderful, beautiful, right, and great and are needed as God has called us to cultivate society. To create society, to create culture, to exercise our abilities and skills that God has given us in vocation. But in all of that, there's an underlining or really overarching theme and narrative that God has called and commanded us to do. That in all of those things, we are to make disciples. We are to make disciples. We are to be witnesses of Jesus in order for people to come To know him. So that's number one. Number two, why then are we making disciples? I'm gonna spend a little bit more time on this one. Why do we make disciples? Why are we called to do this? Because we have been commanded by God to do so. It would be easy just to say that. 
We'd be, we, we've literally just been commanded by God. Therefore, we do it. And honestly, I could just say that, and that's right. That's right. God is God. We are not. He has all authority. We do not. Whatever he says, we should do. But I want you to see why the commands of God on your life are the greatest thing for you. It's the greatest thing for you to experience. It's the greatest thing for you to work out in your life. It's literally, you will not receive anything better in life than to receive God's commands and to do them. To do them. Now, I'm not talking about like salvation here, like do the commands in order to earn God's salvation. I'm not talking about like a works-based religion where as long as you do what he says, then you're on his team and, you're, and it's working things out. No, no, no. I'm talking primarily to believers who God, through his goodness and his grace, has saved you, has brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life based on his own initiative, not anything that you did or didn't do. The only thing you brought to the table is your sin that Jesus died on the cross for. And because he died on the cross for it, he now gives you his righteousness that you get to enjoy and live in every single day. And that righteousness that he has imparted to you, that he's given to you, that he's uploaded in your mind and in your heart and in your soul, that he has downloaded in you, that he has literally deposited in your bank account, whatever you want to call it. He has given you his righteousness. That righteousness now allows you, empowers you, emboldens you to live out his God-given commands and design every single day for your joy and for his glory for your joy and his glory so his commands matter it's not just a he's commanded us to trust in him and so now we are believers wonderful his commands matter for you today because joy is at stake and not only is joy at stake but testimony is at stake witness is at stake the more we get to live out the commands of God and see how that builds within us a greater joy for him, a greater treasure for him, a greater love for him, a greater steadfastness in all of the circumstances of our lives so that those things aren't actually bothering us because we have our rock-solid foundation in Jesus alone, the more that that plays itself out, people around us are looking at us saying, well, you have a crazy, jacked-up, circumstantial life. Life, but you have this steadfastness, you have this peace about you, you have this comfort about you. Where does that come from? Because if I was living your life, I would be constantly on edge all times. And so, well, no, it's, it's, it's nothing that's, that's me, it's Jesus that I'm holding on to every single day. It plays itself out in witness and testimony the more that we understand what he's doing and commanding us every day to live out. So it's important for us. And so I want you to hear it from Jesus' words himself. What God has done to give authority and to ultimately play this out, what he has sent Jesus to do. John chapter 17. And I'm going to read chapter 17 for you because I think it's beautiful. Jesus' words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, this is Jesus praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may be... That, that, let me start over there. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. 
since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What Jesus has just said in this prayer, which is, I love this prayer of Jesus because this is sandwiched in literally the time period that he is being betrayed, beaten, tortured, put to death, resurrected, and ascending back into heaven. As he's giving the disciples the command to go and be witnesses and to go and make disciples, he's praying this prayer. 
that they would be effective. Jesus is ongoingly praying this prayer. And the way in which he's doing that is by sending the Spirit to us who's making groanings, as Romans 8 says, that are too deep for our own words. We literally don't know what to pray, but we have the Holy Spirit always praying for us on our behalf at all times between us and the Father intermediating for us. But what Jesus has said here is the Father put together a plan to send me into the world to preach His Word, to make known to people who God is and how they can be reconciled to Him through salvation. God has sent Jesus to reveal this, to make this known and accomplish this through His life, through His death, through His resurrection. That so that the message is then made known, declared through the Word of God, people come to know God. People come to know Jesus. So in Matthew 28, Jesus is telling his followers to go and do this. To go and make disciples of all nations. And the way in which he provides this to them is by granting authority. Him literally saying, all authority has been given to me by God. You're seeing that played out in this prayer that he is praying to the Father. Father, you have given me all authority. I'm using that authority to exercise praying for these believers who know me and know you to have power to go out and share that message to make known what I've made known to them to others. He's praying for us using his authority to empower us to be able to go and do this. And because he has all authority, it means he's the play caller. It honestly doesn't matter what the play is, whatever play he calls, we should do it because of the authority of Jesus. He's bracketed or sandwiched the Great Commission. I don't know if you saw it. All authority in heaven has been given to me, and don't worry, I'm going to be with you always. All authority is his, and the one who possesses all authority is never going to leave you. Therefore, go and make disciples baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the play that we are running. And really what I want to talk about now in light of where we've been in Acts and in light of where we're going as a church, and I'll share some of that here in a bit, but one of the things I want us to think about and talk about this morning is how this plays out for us, how the authority in Christ, go therefore make disciples, whether that is as you go or if it's getting your plane and go, it really doesn't change the essence of what God's called us to do. There's a specific point in the Great Commission that shows us how this plays itself out. The why is his authority, his prayer, him being with us at all times. The how this plays itself out is right here in the Great Commission. Again, God is not a God of Um, confusion. He's not a God of, let me give them a play to run, but not show them how to run the play. Like He's not a, let me give them the word of God and let them figure it out on their own. No, let's send the Holy Spirit who's going to guide them in understanding the truth. Like God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of clarity. He is a God of order. He orders things to happen the way he wants them to happen and gives us the power to execute them in the way that he wants us to execute it. And so thankfully, in this wonderful three-verse Great Commission, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. Go and make disciples of all nations, and he does two things here. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that he's commanded us. 
So there's two ways that produce the how for how we go and make disciples. There needs to be baptizing and there needs to be teaching involved. These two things are literally how churches structure pretty much all of their ministries. We are proclaiming the word of God, praying, pleading that people come to know him. And as they come to know him, we are baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk about baptism a little bit because a lot of times people can look at this verse and just say, okay, this is literally when you become a believer and you get baptized, you get dunked in the water. That's what it's talking about. And yes, that's what it's talking about. There is an, that is the kind of first command as a believer is to publicly display that you are a believer, that you're on team Jesus. The way that you publicly, physically portray or describe that you are team Jesus is by literally a story, telling a story, sharing your testimony in, I was once dead and I've been buried with Christ on the cross and now I'm raised to walk in a newness of life. I'm raised to walk in this new life that Jesus Christ has given me. I am identified with him as he is now my new identity. And so we put that on display, letting the public, letting the community, letting the church know that this new believer is in Jesus. Baptism has replaced, literally for the Old Testament, the the act of circumcision. Praise the Lord. And so like we're not doing any type of public displays like that. We're just physically baptizing people, showing that they are on team Jesus now. This is what we are doing. But baptism also, or in this case, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit has a much larger and deeper connotation that is ongoing daily. If it was just a one-time thing, they would not have used present, part, or present participle verbiage here. Baptizing. This means ongoing. What does it mean to ongoingly be baptized in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, if you look at the Greek term for baptizing, it's baptizimo, which literally just means to be immersed. So daily, what our first role is as witnesses, disciples who are making disciples, is making sure that we are immersing everyone in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Giving them full access to be immersed in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having conversations about the Father. Having conversations about the Son. Having conversations about the Spirit. Not only are we to immerse others, but we must be immersed daily in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's got to begin with us. One of the things I hate about Christianity, or at least modern day Christianity, is we have done really well in compartmentalizing our Christianity. And what I mean by that is... We have placed it kind of as a part of our check, check to-do list. Like it's, it's, I can have 10 minutes with Jesus in the morning. I can have a little bit of time, like when, you know, before a meal to talk to him. I can have a little bit of moments if I go to a Bible study or if I go to this. Like we've compartmentalized it so that we are literally operating our Christianity as if it's just a part, portion or a part of our life. And it's not necessarily the thing that is defining our lives. And so we've created, whether it's a, um, like he literally doesn't say, 
We are to simply work for God as if it's a nine-to-five shift every day. We are not to simply treat God as a hobby, as if we enjoy him for a few hours each week. We are not to simply view God as a teacher. And once we've graduated from Sunday school class, we've learned all that we need to know and therefore don't need him anymore. He is each of those things and more. We are to be immersed in him. I watched the, um, the new movie Aladdin last night. Um, good movie. Um, it's interesting to hear in the movie them use this language of the genie as being the most all-powerful being within the entire universe. Yet, he is uh, shackled, enchained, and bound to the confines of a lamp and uses this language. God, and, and I feel like we operate, we don't believe this theologically, but functionally, this is how we operate, is that God is our genie in a lamp. We walk through life, and as we're walking through life, and as a circumstance comes up, and it's a difficult circumstance, or a good circumstance, or whatever the circumstance is, we want it to change or get better, we pull out, whether it's our Bible or our phone or whatever it is, we take some time, we rub the lamp. When God appears, we start making our wishes known to him. I mean, I really feel like this is the majority of modern-day Christianity is functionally living out this ide- ideology that God is a genie in a lamp that whenever we need something, we'll go to him. We've compartmentalized him and set him away to the side. This is not the way God operates. We do not define the relationship. Rather, all of our work, relationships, hobbies, and whatever else should be defined by God, not the other way around. If what you are doing cannot be tied back to your testimony or witness of who God is and what he has accomplished through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we are, as John Piper puts it, wasting our lives. Wasting our lives. There are ways in which we can immerse ourselves, all of ourselves, in the God in the Godhead, so that he is glorified and our joy is complete. Now, am I supposed to stop watching football? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm frustrated that the Cowboys are not being aired on TV today. But there's a way that it can be done for the glory of God. And there's a way it can be done or can't be done for the glory of God. I'm just making the point that we are to immerse every aspect of our lives in the Godhead so that as 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. So we are to immerse ourselves, baptizing ourselves daily in that. The second thing, teaching disciples all about the Trinity of God. The next part of the verse is literally teaching them. Teaching them. Here's the reality. Teaching and learning is work. It's work. Jen Wilkins says, we will not wake up 10 years from now and find we have passively taken on the character of God. It's not going to happen. You will not become more like Jesus if the Bible stays closed. Not going to happen. So if our call to make disciples 
And the play that he is calling us to on how to do that is immersing ourselves in the Trinity. How do we immerse ourselves in the Trinity? It's by teaching us to observe all that he's commanded. It's teaching. What are we teaching? We're teaching the word that he's given us. That's what Jesus said. You gave me the word. I gave them the word. Now they are to take that word and they are to go and teach it to others. They are to continually do this, play this out. And the re- here's the reality for us in our current modern day existence. Is that teaching has taken a back seat. It's taken a back seat. Growing in the knowledge of God. Growing in the facts of Christianity. Growing in just Bible knowledge has taken a back seat. And it is a scary place to be. I was on a plane. This was probably six months ago or so. Um, oh, no, this was, this was much longer than that. I was on a plane by myself. And if I'm on a plane, I have a love-hate relationship with planes because I get motion sickness really easily. Um, and so I was on the plane, and like it's, it's, a, it's a goal for me to get on and fall asleep before liftoff. Like every time. Like that's what I'm trying to accomplish so that I can sleep through all the motion sickness. But anyways... I get on the plane. I don't do like the good pastor thing where you take the two hours and witness to the guy next to you. I'm trying to go to sleep. There's this guy that I see as I get on the plane. He's walking down, and as he's walking down, I can tell he's probably spent the last few hours at the bar in the airport. I can just see it on his face. And as he's coming down, he ends up sitting next to me. And when he sits next to me, I mean, I just know, okay, this is, I'm not going to get any sleep. I'm going to be entertaining Um, he was probably around my age, but not acting it. Um, I'm going to have to entertain this guy, and and this is going to go bad at some point. So as he sits down, he's probably ordered another three or four drinks just while we're sitting there, Um, before the plane's even taken off, which I didn't know you could do that. But he's continuing to do this. And so he's sharing with me his life story. He's sharing with me his background, what he does. He's sharing with me all these things. And then it gets to the question where he asks me what I do. And, of course, that's where it gets awkward. I'm thinking this is going to be the thing that literally just stops the conversation. So I'm a pastor. I work in a church. I teach the Bible. Like, that's, that's what I do. And which he pauses for a minute. And then literally this is what he responds with. Man, I bet you know all 12 commandments, don't you? And I'm, I'm, I'm literally, I was like, no, 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 I don't. I mean, I'm, there's not 12. I was like, you know, it's, it's, it's 10. There's 10 commandments. Like, you don't even have to have a church background to know that there's 10 commandments. There's movies based on the fact that there's 10 commandments. And so, but what I actually then learned was he was raised in the church, grew up in the church, went to a Christian Bible college. And didn't realize that one of the most foundational things within our faith, something that we are teaching kids as four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, ten commandments. Now, I know, yes, there are more commandments than that. But just, we're starting at the beginning here, okay? Tablets, ten commandments. What we are seeing in our society is a growing biblical illiteracy. No one knows what the Bible is saying. And here's the reality. If you don't know what the Bible is saying. You don't know who God is. You don't know who he is. 
this is his way of communicating to us his character, his essence, his beauty. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who each of them are, how their roles are played out, what they're doing for us on a daily basis. He's provided this for us, and we do not live by it. Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary down in Louisville, he calls it the scandal of biblical illiteracy. He says this, researchers George Gallup and Jim Costelli put the problem squarely. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. How bad is it? Researchers tell us that it's worse than most could imagine. Fewer than half of, the, uh, half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. According to data from the Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. Multiple surveys reveal the problem in stark terms. According to 82% of Americans, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. It's not. Those identified as born-again Christians did better by 1%. A majority of adults think the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. Some of the statistics are enough to perplex even those aware of the problem. A Barna poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Another survey of graduating... Yeah... Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. We are in big trouble. This generation must get deadly serious about the problem of biblical illiteracy. Or a frightening large number of Americans, Christians included, will go on thinking that Sodom and Gomorrah lived happily ever after. End quote. The date on that article was June 29, 2004. That's 15 years ago that was written. Do we think it's gotten better? So I'm here today to pull the fire alarm on this room full of people who are asking the questions, should we teach others the Bible? Yes. Teach them and teach them and teach them. We cannot afford for people to not know the Bible because it is what leads us into knowing who God is. Jen Wilkin also says, as we squint into the glaring dawn of post-Christian America, we must learn to treasure and teach our sacred text as recent generations have not. Listen to her quote in Women of the Word. When Christians grow increasingly lax in their pursuit of Bible literacy, everyone in their circle of influence is affected. Rather than acting as salt and light, we become bland contributions to the environments we inhibit and shape, indistinguishable from those who have never been changed by the gospel. If we grow in biblical illiteracy, 
there will be no difference between believers and non-believers. And you can begin to actually argue whether there are believers at all. Because of this, functionally for us as a church, there are two ways that this plays itself out for us. We know that we need to get people immersed in the Trinity. And we know that we need to teach people the Bible. Now, we can... We know that there's multiple ways to get into the Bible. And there's multiple ways to teach and there's multiple ways to present and whatnot. And then there's going to be way better ways to do it. There's going to be a lot of opportunities out there. But here's the reality for us. We're going to try. We're just going to start. We're just going to keep giving you opportunities. This is why we created the Institute knowing that we are probably not the size of a church that can actually support a ministry like the Institute. Most churches that are running 1,000 to 12,000 people will have an Institute that will have two to 500 people that sign up for a Bible class to be able to grow in their understanding of Scripture. We know that we're going to launch a class and there may be three to five people that come to it. That's a win for us. Because if we take this seriously we're going to teach the bible and if the only time that we're opening the bible and teaching it is what you hear us do on a sunday morning we're failing as a church we are not making disciples teaching them to observe all that god has commanded us therefore in everything we do i love the fact during one of the sermon or sermons or songs brie read from scripture that's teaching you. That's showing you the word of God. We're singing the word of God. We're praying the word of God. We're doing whatever we can to get the word of God into you because we know that's the only thing that's going to transform you. It's not going to be me coming up here and giving you kind of like um, Twitterable words or phrases in order for you to go out and be like, listen to this quote. No, we're just going to open the Bible and teach it. And pray that the Holy Spirit is doing his work in your hearts, in your minds, in order for you. Is Twitterable not a word? I see y'all <laughs> laughing. But anyways, we're going to get tweetable. There it is. I like Twitterable. We're going to get the Bible into you because we know that's the only thing that's going to transform you. Twitterable is Twitterable. We want to grow in our understanding. We want to grow in our knowledge. So there's going to be Bible in your community groups. There's going to be Bible in institutes. There's going to be Bible in discipleship groups if you get two to three people together. Like, what are we going to get together and discuss? Let's discuss God. Where do we go to discuss God? Let's go to his word. That's what he's given to us to learn and to get to know him. And throughout all of that, there is a dependence on the Holy Spirit to help us to guide us, to show us, to keep us anchored in what it is that he wants us to know in order for our affections to be steered in the right direction so that our motivations are right. 
all of it plays itself out. It is not intellectualism versus emotionalism that are kind of on this constant fight and churches are trying to determine which one to do. No, it's a both and. You cannot feel rightly what you do not know rightly. And you cannot know rightly something that is not also stirring up your affections. On both ends of the spectrum, you have fundamentalism over here that is, let's do everything we can to make sure that we know the right thing. But if that is not stirring up your heart and your desires, then you actually don't know the right things. And at the same time, we can't necessarily approach it from, whenever I feel right, I'll die then. Because you could have eaten some bad Chipotle and it makes you feel terrible and therefore you're not motivated to do anything, right? You could have got cut off on, like your emotions are so fleeting that there's never a way in order to trust them if they're not grounded in the truth of God, which is why I love that Jesus' prayer, if don't take it from me, take it from him. I'm just the messenger. Jesus' prayer is literally, I want them to grow in their affections for us, and the way in which they're going to do that is by getting the truth in them. Get the truth in them. Preach the truth to them. Let them meditate on the truth. Give them every access to the truth so that they're shaped and molded and we, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, are glorified and they are experiencing the fullness of joy. They're experiencing relationship. We are in them as they are in us. That's, what, that's, that's immersion, right? Immersion. You cannot have immersion without teaching, without truth, without Bible. So we're going to do everything we can as a church functionally as we're talking about Acts 29 and Acts 30 and Acts 31 as we keep planting this thing. We're going to do everything we can to observe teaching and immersion, teaching and immersion, teaching and immersion because we need to know the commands of God that are leading to our joy, to our joy. So my prayer is, my prayer is, 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 end of October, whenever we're wrapping up Gospel Primer and we lead out with this next Institute class, come to it. If you want to know more about God, come to it. Continue being a part of the community groups because there's going to be Bible there. Get together with two or three people and create some kind of accountability group or discipleship group or whatever it looks like to continue just centering around the Bible and let's say, let's get to know Jesus some more. Let's get immersed in him some more. Let's figure this out together. Do whatever you can in your life to be defined by him and not compartmentalizing him so that it's informing everything that we do. I want our role in the book of Acts to continue to grow and develop. And the only way that's going to happen is each one of us individually taking this seriously. Man, let's get to know him more. Let's get to experience him more. And let's go to the place where we get to experience him. And let's structure our lives around that so that we have more of it. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church.
Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at the district.church.